Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. TechCrunch reports fintech accounted for 21% of all venture capital dollars raised in 2021. When things go up, they also have a Newtonian way of coming down. The same article says that 10% of all layoffs in Q2 came from the very same fintech sector. Neobanks such as Chime, Newbank, Klarna, Revolut, they were rocket ships that have now had to pull IPOs and take massive valuation haircuts. Does this signal the end of neobanking? Ron Shevlin, Chris Skinner, and I debate what's next for NEOs. And in the second half, Amber Buker, formerly my partner at Alloy Labs, where she led Strategic Insights, decided a global economic meltdown was the perfect time to start, wait for it, a neobank. Let's find out what her strategic insight was. Tune in. It is not as crazy as it sounds. She even convinced Alloy Labs Alchemist Fund to invest. That's both a disclosure and a vote of confidence. This week on Breaking Banks, is it the end or the end of an era? All right. The big news over the last couple of weeks is it turns that there has been a return to Earth. It is, gravity has taken full effect for a bunch of the neobanks coming back, you know, and raising valuations that are fractions of what they were before. And Chris, why don't we start with you about what's the view from you know, the European take on folks like Klarna and Monzo has been strangely quiet, you know, in terms of how things are going, you know, what is the atmosphere from a European perspective when it comes to the neobanks? Well, first of all, we need to clarify what we mean by a neobank and that some have full banking licenses like Monzo and Starling. Um, Some just have a money and payments license like Klarna. Um, and there's a big difference between all these players. And looking at the world, not just Europe, um, what we're seeing is a number of them struggling with financing and um, funding rounds. Uh, Obviously, if they're privately held, that's a key issue for them. Um, The runway has narrowed a lot, particularly this year, with what I would say is a recessionary factor, which I know Ron will talk about, but when you look at Varro, for example, in the USA, that's a big issue for them. Uh, I think it's a big issue for Klarna and for Monzo, to be honest. Um, Some of the big issues are around the way in which they've developed. Um, So there's a number of challenges out there. The biggest challenge, when I look at N26, for example, a German um, digital bank, um, and I'll I'll clarify, if I say neobank, I mean a bank, a a fintech without a banking license. If I say digital bank, I mean one that has one, or challenger bank is one that has a banking license. And N26 has one, but they've walked into a lot of trouble in the way in which they've onboarded customers, because when they started, it was like licensed banking, and then they became full licensed banking, and they didn't re-onboard their customers. And so their KYC, know your customer processes, have been particularly at issue. But this isn't going away. I mean, we're seeing new banks, um, both Neo and 
digital challenger launching in Middle East, Africa, Asia, South America, particularly my favorite is New Bank in South America, which I could talk mm. about extensively because um, I was recently in um, Brazil talking to an audience there around what's happening with neo banking and digital banking. But rather than hogging the whole of this episode, I'll let Ron give his comments as well. Yeah, I'm going to comment under uh, protest here. I didn't realize I was coming on to com- to uh, debate Chris Skinner because I'm <laughs> not that stupid to do that. So <laughs> I know uh, that's why I had to trick you into being here. Uh, I was like, oh my god, so, I like a debate. Uh, c- c- come on, snark. Come on, snark me. Uh, yeah, I like debate too. I just like to pick my my uh, opponents a little bit more carefully, you know. I'm good people, I think I can uh, win in a debate. Um, so I would not dispute um, Chris's definitions of neo bank. You know, it's uh, my kind of take uh, on the article that I published, um, and and I'm having to find myself uh, explain it a little bit. Was that I think the neo bank era is over. Not that neobanks are dead and the ones that are existing aren't going away. I got a, they got an email from a CEO of a neobank or what I like to call community fintechs because many of them that don't have a license can't really be called a bank and because they tend to focus on affinity groups. So um, I, I've, I've often used the example of Panacea Financial, which I'm a big fan of. They, they uh, support young physicians. And sure enough, got an email from the uh, CEO of that company yesterday saying, I totally disagree. We're doing really well, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, well, yeah, I use you guys as an example all the time. But the to me, the typical neobank, whether they have a, a, a license or not, is has been in the U.S. at least a fintech who has come into the market with the idea that there are these underserved consumers, generally low to middle income consumers, who are being underserved by traditional banks because the banks won't lend to them or because banks overcharge them with overdraft fees and monthly fees and things like that, uh, and whose business models tend to rely on interchange as the revenue mechanism, which they often have to share with a bank partner who's providing the, the license in, in the uh the background. And my take has been that I think the past 10 years has kind of proven a couple of things. Number one, that um, interchange is not a, a, a business model to, to hang your hat on, uh, especially if you have to share it. But regardless, because of the payment trends that consumers have, and Chris, it was interesting, you wrote uh, a rebuttal to my article, um, and you were actually honing in on my points about primary consider you know the, the consumer the consumers who, who consider a neo bank or any bank their primary and your point was hey we just have accounts that do things and in effect you're 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 absolutely right in, in many ways and it actually kind of makes my points because people have so many different accounts that they use to make payments these days that even a, a challenger bank, neo bank, digital bank, whatever you want to call somebody like a Chime or a Varo, who has run up millions and millions of accounts, reality is, is that even their customers are spreading their payments behavior over lots of different accounts. And so fundamentally, my, my point was that not that these banks are going to go away. It's really hard for me to imagine Chime going away with you know a, a billion dollars of funding behind it. But my point was that the neo bank era, the era of 
of VCs pumping a billion dollars into startup fintechs who are going to go after low to middle income consumers who are spreading their payments behavior over 10 different accounts and who aren't very good uh, lending prospects to begin with, I don't I don't see another chime coming along. Not that these these existing bank existing fintechs are going away, but that I think we've we've seen the end of the funding. Well, and I think Volt makes a great example of that, right? Like when you look at the number of customers they had and the amount of funding, it's like, how did this happen? And how did you have so few customers for that much money in terms of what you've raised that I wonder, is it a systemic issue in terms of like, where do we begin to say like this ends? Is it because the business model was fundamentally flawed, right? Basing a business on interchange. And then when you share interchange, it's worse and interchange is going to get perpetually squeezed. Is it the VCs that were pumping growth versus value? You know, where do we at? What does the next era look like, Ron? Why don't we start with you and then go back to you, Chris? Around if it's the end of an era, what's the next era we're entering? Um, I think that, well, I think the next era is the the affinity focused fintech that goes after says we're going to be more like lifestyle providers where financial services is just a a segment of the products and services that a startup provides or that they're providing something specific to a the platform so it's more the i think it's the embedded um whether it's embedded finance or an embedded fintech uh that's you know where the fintech the embedded fintech is a, a financial institution embedding other fintech firms or really other you know other firms products and services into their platform or where the fintech or bank is embedding their services into a brand or some other fintech's products and services that goes after a, a you know more narrowly defined segment uh but but not defining it by you know low to middle income consumers which so many of the early neo banks have defined their their market as yeah, I mean, from what you're saying, I, I think the US market might be different to Europe and the rest of the world because the neo banks, challenger banks, digital banks are not driven by interchange. They're driven by um, customer engagement and then expanding footprint. They may start with a simple offer like a prepaid debit card, which is what Monzo did, and then expand into more full financial services. And in that context, it's about lifestyle services, particularly with a lot of these digital first banks, rather than the more complicated products like mortgages, which they'll leave, or foreign exchange services, they'll leave those to the traditional banks at the moment. Having said that, that will change because you have a lot of fintech startups that can do mortgage brokerage or mortgage servicing and FX. Uh, in particular over here, for example, Wise and Revolut started in that space, so they're being very successful there. Um, I think the issue we have is twofold. So first of all, I should say that I think Ron and I are in violent agreement about the neobank era of doing what they've done so far is over. Um, I think there's still a lot of room for new neobanks. But the issue I have is a lot of the neobank and challenger bank community and have been emulating and copying what traditional banks did and moving it into apps and services for the smartphone they haven't reinvented financial services and i continually tell any fintech startup what you should be doing is, is either fixing what banks do badly 
or creating something that banks don't do. And that's a very simple message. And I think too many believe they're fixing what banks do badly, but they're not actually fixing the issue that a customer has, which is the way in which I want to be served. And I'll give you a clear example, which is when I use some of the UK Challenger Bank services, I get alerts all the time about what's dynamically happening in real time on my account. I don't get any real time alerts from my old bank. I have to go into the app to look at what's happening. And that means my old bank then says, we're the best digital bank in the world because Chris Skinner opens the app twice a day and never opens the app of his neobank. And that's where I think we're getting into the hub of the difference. I think the second big issue for the neobank community is that they got this hype uh, of the VC and private equity markets, where I was actually really shocked to see that typically most of the new banks were being valued at a million dollars for every thousand customers. Or you know, when you think about that, that's actually ridiculous um, in terms of their, their valuations. For some, that was even a, a lot higher. And I, th I think there's a reality this year because of the recession and the dynamics of the markets um, taking place by way of example, Klarna went from a $45 billion valuation last year to a $6 billion valuation this year. That's the reality starting to click in around what's actually happening here. It's not all about the tech. But where I was giving the, the rebuttal, if you want to say, Ron, was um, at the end of this, there will be some very successful digital and challenger banks that come out of this process, uh, like New Bank or Starling Bank. I think they're my two big bets. Um, and what's happening with them is interesting because they're focusing on open banking platforms with APIs and partnering and not trying to be control freaks and doing everything in a digital first economy where they can bring in appropriate uh, other fintechs that they've done the due diligence around to integrate those for a better customer experience. And a little bit like the dot-com bust and boom, or boom and bust, rather. Um, when you came out of the bust, you did have Amazon, you did have PayPal, you did have a number of companies that have succeeded you know, amazingly since 2000. We're going to see the same uh, in a couple of years coming out of the fintech community, and particularly in the digital and challenger and neobank community. I think one of the things, takeaway, Chris, that resonated with me is there seemed for a long time to be this disconnect between valuation and value to the customer. And everyone was measuring success based on valuation, not around the ability to serve, you know, a community or a customer in a way that was, you know, before under, you know, totally underrepresented and they're willing to pay for. Ron, what do you think the business model of the future looks like? Or where's the opportunity where there truly is unmet need that's meaningful? I, I think it's in providing a wider range of services than just simply payment services or just simply lending services to having a portfolio of products and services that you charge for that resonate with a particular set of customers. Uh, either that or you're a, a specialist and you're providing that specialty product or service to a lot of different, you know, that's why I say it's sort of the, either, either the embedded finance or the embedded fintech uh, model. Um, I do agree a lot with Chris about you know, the fact that these startups have not really reinvented anything 
um, which is why I think the you know the focus has to be on product reinvention, not customer experience. You know, I've said this for a long time. You know, I don't know if you guys were on Twitter yesterday when Jim Maru's claimed to have like a trademark on some phrase. Well, I'm going to have my trademark on my phrase is going to be nobody wants a digital bank; they want a better bank. And I think what a lot of the the European uh, neo banks coming into the U.S. learned the hard way, like N26, like Monzo, like Revolut was that we in the United States don't care that you're a digital bank. We want something better. And Revolut has succeeded more in providing uh, international money transfer than they have being a, a general bank. And N26 has gone nowhere. I don't, I'm not even sure they're in the U.S. anymore. They're not. Monzo either. So, um, you know, it's a, it's about sort of the, the, the product of innovation that's needed, not the customer experience innovation. And I'm glad Brett's not on on this episode here because uh, he'd go ballistic over that because he believes it's all about the experience. And I think where we tend to get into the either the argument slash agreement is that it's hard to distinguish between the product and the experience at some point. But I think Chris's point was they came in with sort of your standard product, but only, you know, promising to provide something digital. So I don't see that succeeding. I think that's why, like a lot of the neo banks in the U.S. are not going anywhere. Um, but it, like the like a panacea, it, it's focused more on a lending relationship than it is a payment relationship. And uh, that's why I mean, even SoFi, what did they? How did they start going after at, you know affluent or affluent to be graduates of of top schools? Uh, and help them re refinance their student loans and build the you know from there on a base of of customers and then of course got into a lot of different areas um and so you know i think the the point is you, you've got to kind of pick your 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 target market first who are you going after and i think this is where the neobanks failed is they went after a segment of consumers that they were never going to make money from um and so what what's next is is more of the the affinity era of uh, really kind of honing in and specializing in on specific uh, segments of the market, understanding their unique needs, financial or not. And like to Chris's point about Monzo in the UK, you know, being more of a lifestyle, I think that's more a model. And although I am still a big fan of Starling, and which is I think more of a platform model. Um, but uh, yeah, I think in the U.S., that's maybe a, a bit harder uh, path to go down. Yeah, I mean, I'll pick up on a couple of points from what you said, Ron, because um, what I find interesting is, going back to my comment, you know, fintechs should fix the things that banks do badly in APIs through open banking or do things that banks don't do which might mean reaching out to different consumer segments that are not served or small businesses that are underserved, um, which is happening. But the challenge in the latter group is the credit um, management and risk management in those sectors, particularly um, if there is lending taking place. Um, just offering a pure transactional service actually is quite interesting because obviously there's so much innovation that we've seen in China and India and Asia in those areas that um, that's not neobanks, it's basically new models based on how to transact, some of them on platforms, some of them through APIs. And I come back to my model. So 
Jason, you mentioned what's the model, you know, which is the front office is the apps, which could be in the Internet of Things on devices like your car or your telephone or your fridge. The platform is the uh, Internet itself, which is then an open banking API ecosystem of many, many, many players. I often refer to the fact that there's around 30,000 fintech startups around the world today doing one thing brilliantly well, whilst banks try and do 30,000 things averagely or badly. And that model has to change. It needs to be a integrated aggregation of the best in class services through the platform. That's the new model. And at the back end, it's the data analytics and the artificial intelligence. You can't have intelligence if you have done data. You've got to really get your data rocking and rolling. And I think what's happening is that, and I can see this in Europe, I don't know whether you see it in the US, but um, we're moving to a process-driven model through code, and the regulators will regulate those processes at the minute level of what something is trying to achieve, which might be a payment, but it goes below that in granularity to a merchant payment, a consumer payment, a issuer-acquirer payment, and the whole way in which that ecosystem evolves is going to be really interesting because today we tend to talk about regulatory um, requirements at a macro level, but we're moving to micro level services that need micro level regulations. And then my final point is, um, you know, the ones that are succeeding the most in the neobank, new bank, challenger digital bank space really understand because they have people on board who are both digital and financial, where the soft underbelly to target banking is. And I don't know whether you've seen this in the USA, but when I mentioned Newbank, I really love this quote that was from their chief operating officer and co-founder, um, who said that if banks are Darth Vader, credit cards are the Death Star, and that's what they went to blow up. At the time in Brazil, typically a credit card would cost you $20 a month, and they went in with an offer of $5 a month because they changed the model. And as they proved they could do that, the regulatory resistance to new bank entrants in Brazil, uh, the walls came down because basically the regulator could see that they were challenging and doing it in a really good way that was appropriate. And then they uh, added to their footprint. And I think that's what we've seen with Monzo and Starling going back to the, those two in that um, you start with a very narrow focus around how can you blow up the weak underbelly, the weak underbelly of a bank and then expand the footprint, but in a pragmatic way through an open banking system. Uh, and those who do it that way will succeed nicely. So going to my opening comments, we will see some that succeed massively. And I've made the prediction that by the end of this decade, one of the neo banks or challenger banks will be acquiring one of the traditional banks or incumbent banks, depending on how you want to refer to them. Potentially. And, you know, part of what's interesting, you know, in this theme, I keep thinking of Lindsay Davis and her graphic when she was at CB Insights, when it was the unbundling of the bank, when they went after that weak underbelly of one thing they do poorly, and I think the problem is now they all realize you can't make money on that one thing. So now we're seeing the era of rebundling, but we're rebundling back to what traditional banks have already done. We're not bundling in new ways. You know, to Ron's point, what services do we get in? And I think we let's let's go down that theme. What should yeah, we be adding? What, what I was saying is, you know, we've seen the unbundling and rebundling discussion, but my positioning is 
when we, specifically when we talk about banking as a service, I continually come back to saying you cannot do banking as a service if you're not a licensed bank. So the banking as a service is the rebundling. That's what the banks should be doing. The unbundled pieces of processes in the uh, area around that are what they should be looking at bringing into their ecosystem as partners through the platform. And so the unbundled processes is the process-driven APIs that are offered in the middle office, if, if, you, if you want to refer to that way, I'd refer to it as through the cloud. And the understanding of that then gets interesting because some really, you know, rock and roll with this, like some of the banks I talk about on my books and blog, DBS in Singapore in particular, for example, really get this idea of uh, integrating cloud partner services through APIs into a great customer experience that they're focused on delivering as a bank. And I just don't know whether many actually get this. Uh, Ron, what do you think? Well, let's go back to definition a little bit, just so that everybody who's listening at least knows how we're using terms, or at least I'll tell you how I'm using terms. Banking as a service to me is what the bank provides to either a fintech or a non-financial brand because the fintech and the non-financial brand don't have a license. It, it's predominantly driven because of the need for it is predominantly driven because of the regulatory environment. Now, even if it, there was no regulatory environment, I still think there would be banking as a service because I don't think every fintech and brand wants to build out every banking product that a bank already has. But I think that there are many banks, especially in the US, who are seeing the trend and trying to jump on the banking as a service bandwagon, not recognizing that their products aren't good enough. It, you, you still have to provide something of value. What's really different, I think, in banking as a service is that it's simply a change in distribution channel. Instead of going directly to consumers, you are now going, you know, it's it's not a, instead of a B2C model, it's a B2B2C model um, in which you're going through some other business in order to reach customers. And it should be a, you know, I think many banks don't like it because they think they're being disintermediated from the customer. Well, they're disintermediated from the consumer or the small business, but they just happen to have a new customer. The new customer yep. is the fintech or the brand. And I think there's a lot more money to be made that way and could be a lot better model. So I think that that's a, uh, you know, very attractive trend. And, and I think it's going to be picked up by a lot. But I think what a lot of banks aren't recognizing is, the brand or the fintech is going to choose you as the banking as a service provider because you're bringing great products to the table and doing it you know effectively efficiently from a from a technology perspective so you know the api aspect to it is really important the cloud delivery aspect to this is very important but the product has to be there and you know things like real time payments um you know real time lending uh, you know, crypto and investing services, whatever it might be, has got to be there from a bank perspective. Uh, and, you know, Chris, they, you've been harping on this for 20 years. The banks have been super slow to digitize their own internal processes. How the hell are they going to do it if now all of a sudden they're just trying to turn their their uh, focus outward? So, are you saying I'm a grumpy old guy? Um, well, you are. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I am. I don't know about the grumpy part. Well, I actually don't know about the old part either. So, uh, no, I would never accuse you of, of being that. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think the banking as a service uh, trend has a lot of legs to it. Um, but I, I think a lot of banks are 
jumping on the bandwagon without a real recognition of what they've got to bring to the table. So I'll tell you a funny story, and that's um, you know, going back to I've been banging on the drum for a long time, and basically the main message is you build a physical business model as a traditional bank and added digital on top. You need to build a new model where digital is the foundation and physical is on top. And I call it omni-axis versus omni-channel. Omni-axis says you have a consistent, rationalized digital core. Omni-channel says you slap new technology on old structure. And I was talking to an innovative new idea of a company the other day where because branches in Britain have been closing at a very rapid rate of the traditional banks, a lot of customers no longer have access to a human being or to a physical point of access to their financial provider. And we ended up talking about access as a service. And that gets interesting for me because we have infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, software as a service. Physical access as a service may be a very new dynamic marketplace that I've only just clicked onto because of that conversation, but it goes to the core of saying, sometimes customers do want to speak to someone. And you, you may say, well, oh, we've got a call center. Um, although one of my old jokes is what's Google's telephone number? It's why Google won't be a, a bank. Um, but you know, the human face-to-face -face support of finance is actually, for me, an integral part of financial services that's undervalued and overlooked by many of the other commentators. And I think the idea of access as a service where you have a multi-banked building with humans is a really interesting proposition. Well, I don't know, Chris. I, 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 here's where we may disagree. Um, I've lived in my house now for 30 years. I've had the same for both house, home, and, in, and car insurance, the same agent for 30 years. If she bumped into me in the mall, uh, not that I've been in a mall recently, but I can't imagine where I'd really bump into anybody else. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't recognize. I wouldn't know her. She could literally walk right past me. I wouldn't know her. But we have used her extensively for 30 years. The first person we call when we've had an accident or anything happened to the house, and it's been a great relationship. But it. it but it's always been on the phone. And the, the point why the why the call centers don't work is because because when you talk to somebody at the call center, they might as well be from Mars. They have no idea who you are. No, there's no history of the relationship. And that's why we walk into the branch, because we need to see the person physically and, and because there's no other way to, to talk to anybody who's can be accountable for solving your, your problem. But we're, we're deviating here a little bit because... The main point was about the neobanks, but you know, I, I'm kind of not necessarily saying you have to have the physical relationship unless you want it. And I understand what you're saying, Ron, about your relationship with your broker. Um, but you probably know her name, you know her number, you know how to find her. And if you did want to meet with her because you had a need to have that, you know, connection, you probably could. Um, but what was interesting during the middle of the conversation I had with this guy who had this idea was that um, when you look at the digital first banks, what's their next level of relationship? And at the moment, a lot of them don't even have a call center. Um, you know, Atom Bank in the UK, when I said, oh, you've got a call center, they said, well, actually, no, it's just a technical support telephone number. If you have a problem with the technology, it's not to talk about your you know, transactions or balances or 
you know, needs. And I just see there's an interesting development here around how access as a service will become something different. And it could be just telephone access. It could be physical access. I'm not saying you need the physical access, but some people do. I mean, I, I, when I walk into a bank branch, I see so many people who are there, to be honest, just actually because they wanted to have a day out. Yeah. So you're saying the Capital One Cafe has some legs to it. I want to go have a day out. So I go get a good cup of coffee. I, Ron, I knew you would bite on that one. Now the one near <laughs> me closed down. Yeah. The last place I want to go for a cup of coffee. Well, gentlemen, thank you both for chiming in around the, the next era of banking. It'll be interesting to see what it looks like as... Is it dinosaurs going extinct and a rise of a new generation, or is it just an evolution? So thank you both for the opinions and Chris for staying up late, Ron for being up early to be on. Thanks, guys. Nice to Thanks. see you both uh, virtually. <laughs> We're very excited to announce our newest podcast to join the Provoke Media family, The Futurists. Already it's our fastest growing podcast globally and we've had some phenomenal guests. Kevin J. Anderson, the author in the Dune Universe and creative consultant on the Oscar winning movie of the same name. Dr. Harry Kluwer, the founder of Beyond Imagination, the creators of the avatar robot known as Beyomni. Andrew Hessel, a synthetic biologist, PJ Manny, an ethical futurist, Dr. Roman Yaplonsky, Ross Dawson, and many more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the potential of our future, how futurists think about and explore the future, join Robert Tursek and I as we explore the world of tomorrow and the visionaries working to create it. The Futurist Podcast. We will see you in the future. Hello, listeners. I'm Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. Together, myself and Dr. Richard Petty have recently released our latest best-selling book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. We look at how inequality, artificial intelligence, and climate change are going to shape our world moving forward. During the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires ballooned. The richest 1% added $1.6 trillion to their wealth, meaning that they own more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans today. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic, but artificial intelligence could disrupt up to 80% of the jobs today. These new industries we are creating will face labor shortages because we aren't training our students with the right skills. By 2050, we'll need to produce 70% more food to feed the 9 billion inhabitants of the planet. But we lost 40% of our farmland to erosion and pollution in the last 50 years. By 2050, 570 global cities face inundation from sea rise. Miami, Guangzhou, New York, Calcutta and Shanghai are just the top five cities. If you want to know more about the solutions to these problems, check out The Rise of Techno-Socialism, our latest best-selling book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or go to riseoftechnosocialism.com to find out more. Welcome to the future. Well, Amber, I'm glad that you are still a host for Breaking Banks because introducing Amber Buker formerly known as the artist <laughs> that was head of insights for Alloy Labs. But you've flown the nest or the coop, as the case may be, to go off in an all 
things go start a challenger bank. So in the first half, Ron and Chris and I were talking about, you know, is Neo banking dead? And you followed this from the outset from bank director. And then what we do with Alloy Labs and the number of banks we have that play within the banking as a service in the Neo bank space. Why of all times would you want <laughs> to go leave and start a Neo bank now? And maybe we should start with what's wrong with Neo banks? Like you have a crisp mind on this. Like, what's wrong with the system of neobanks as we see them today? And then we'll get into what uh, you're actually setting off to accomplish. Yeah. So I think the concept of a neobank, a challenger bank, an affinity bank, an identity focused bank in our case um, is a really beautiful concept that creates community in a digital space, which I think is something that we're all looking for more and more. Um, but the fatal flaw, if you will, I think in a lot of neobank models is that they rely solely on interchange revenue, which I'm sure that you talked about with, with everyone before me. Um, I like to say interchange is subject to change and therefore is not um, something that you can really stake a you know multi-year, hopefully multi-generational business on. And so we've tried to kind of create a more anti-fragile business model that doesn't rely solely on that. But then, you know, when we're thinking like, okay, well, what else can we do to make money as a bank that's not interchange? Um, we really took it back to our founding story and what was important to us so that we were aligning these other revenue opportunities with our mission and our vision for what Totem would be. And where that founding story started was with me trying to access tribal benefits. Um, it was In my case, it was a down payment assistance program that was really difficult to find, difficult to find anyone that knew about it. Um, and then when I started to get more into this world of understanding these benefits and what's available, I started to realize how the tribes are actually dispersing the benefits is also a pain point for them. And so we started to think, okay, well, how can we build wealth in the native community based on these assets that they already should have access to and clear up that pain point for the tribes? Well, there we go. Now we have some real revenue opportunity to provide value in a way that is you know, increasing access to benefits for our customers and also making the process of administering and distributing those benefits easier for the tribe. And now we have a B2B model and in some cases a B2B2C model in terms of the tribes actually acting as our distribution partners for these accounts um, that is much stronger than like a typical just direct to consumer play. Well and I loved you know part of you know this story in how it fits is affinity is not enough. Like I like this idea of like hey we all crave affinity. I'm not willing to pay for affinity. And, you know, in most cases, it has to be tangible value. And that's what you hooked me with in the totem story was there is value provided to each one of the stakeholders in this, whether it's the tribe that right now is sending, you know, a paper check, maybe an ACH, but Native Americans are some of the most severely underbanked out there. I mean, surprised you don't trust the system after you know, <laughs> right. your tribal lands have been stolen and just about every treaty has been broken. What's wrong? Um, There's no generational trauma there. No, definitely no, not. No, <laughs> no. Um, clearly. Yeah. And so, you know, this value, like it really is the story of you're taking friction out of the system and that creates the opportunity for everyone benefits by doing this. It's not paying for a metal card. Or, you know, paying because I, I want to put my own picture on the card or feeling, right. you know, like literally and figuratively, I'm part of a tribe 
that you know this is more than just identity it's value creation exactly um it has to be something other than like a fun service that makes you feel like you're a part of a club i think we've had that model for so long and to your point about like buying the metal cards like <laughs> there are just so many things uh we can talk about this i was tweeting the other day with someone that if uh it, you know there was the first neobank for pet owners launch it's like Listen, yeah. <laughs> I can actually get behind this. You launch a Chewy.com rewards program, I'm in. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Really, of all times? Even, yeah. Even uh, and we're going to use this screenshot okay. that okay. For everyone should know this is Amber's puppy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the puppy horse. Um, no, but, it, you know, so having having this alignment between not just having an account that says, hey, this is who I am, this actually helps me self-actualize in many cases. Um, they're, you know, Native Americans are the fastest growing racial demographic group on the census. We had a 160% population jump from the 2010 to the 2020 census. So it's a huge growing group. And this allows people to not only self-identify and say, this is another stake in the ground where I'm connecting with and claiming my culture, but it's also giving me access to, you know, again, like these tangible benefits and and opportunities to connect with my heritage um, that other folks are are not, you know, the other folks, it's really hard to create products around just a single affinity. Um, yep. Whereas when when we're talking about your heritage, there's so many factors of that. We have a really long roadmap that includes products like a powwow finder and a charitable giving piece that will allow you to give to native charities. I mean, the list goes on and on in terms of ways that we can engage that are meaningful and deep and, you know, different than, than just a, a cool card with the right like picture on it. Well, I mean, I do have a picture of Lola, my golden retriever on my uh, <laughs> capital one card, which is, even though it's expired, it's, I still carry it, but you know, that just goes to show how often I use that card. Right. Um, right? right. So when you were bringing this together and it was important to you to round out the team with other native Americans. And as you were road testing this and running the idea, I'm curious what the reaction was from you know some of the people that y- you brought the idea to. Yeah, so we did a concept test really early on um, when we were just kicking around the idea of is this something that we should even think about doing? Um, you know, I, I've seen a lot of neobanks, and I was one of the people who believed that we were completely oversaturated in that market. So I wanted to make sure that I was, you know, creating something potentially that people would actually want. We did a quick concept test, and um, what we found was that the reaction was really overwhelmingly positive. Over 90% of people loved, quote unquote, or liked the concept. Um, 88% of our concept test respondents uh, requested email updates from us throughout throughout the lifespan as we build. And then 60% of the folks who did the test for us signed up for our account waiting list. And so, um, you know, we were, we were building an account wait list, you know, just a few months into planning, which was really exciting. And what we learned from that was that it it really was because of who and and what we are. So we kind of positioned this as as banking by and for natives, and that was the number one thing that stuck out to people. We were talking about you know a spot me feature and a fee free account and all of these other kind of little features that we added to the test. Um, and people liked some of those, but far and away the number one thing that people talked about in the qualitative responses was, hey, you know, I bank with 
Chase or Wells or one of these big nationals. And the only reason I do it is because they have a good app and I can get ATM access anywhere. But if it weren't for those things, I would never bank with them. I don't want to bank with them. I don't like that I have to bank with them. And so we found over and over again, that just the fact that this was specific to our people and a brand that they could ostensibly trust was what won people over and made them really want to see this product come to life. Um, So, you know, it's not just the unbanked folks that we're targeting, although that's definitely a big part of our mission is to get more natives banked. We're the largest group of unbanked people in the country when you're looking at race and ethnicity. Um, about 16% of natives nationwide are unbanked. That bore out in our concept test as well. About 15.6 were unbanked of the folks that we surveyed. But what made us really excited was another 11% were already using a digital-only bank. And then the rest were split out 50-50 between credit union and community bank users and those big national players. And so we feel like we have a really great opportunity to, to win market share from you know, not just folks that are already unbanked, but folks that are already yep. digitally banking and big national customers. Yeah. Well, for the unbanked, to me, the opportunity there is when you're working with the tribe that wants to replace prepaid and um, you know sending paper checks, you know, that have a tendency to get lost in the mail or addresses, you know, change and there's breakage and it's bad for everyone. You know, this is what Hire One built their business on, as you and I've talked about, around how do you solve the problem for the university that needs to get student loan money into the hands of students, right? There is a natural wedge there, and it's bigger than, let's just make it prettier, right? It's not about prettier. Yeah. It's actually real value and a cost savings for a number of them. Now, was anyone anti the idea? Like you said, you know, of the 66, did you get any negative feedback? Uh, we had literally like two people say that they would not open the account. <laughs> um, so, so there wasn't a ton of, um, backlash or negativity. I think, um, you know, in terms of, of our customer base, we do have some significant trust issues to, um, to address. And so, you know, I think that a lot of the the kind of naysayers, if you will, um, were just like, you know, who are these people sending me this survey? Like, I don't even know you. Like, why would I do this? It, it doesn't seem real um, or it seems like you might be like getting taken for a ride or whatever. Um, and so I, I truly think that the few naysayers that we had, once they see that this is a real product that is built by real native people and we can show them something tangible, um, that, that it'll, it'll make sense for them. And, and I have every confidence that we will win them over. Yeah. I'm trying to think about naysayers. You know, it's interesting when we talk to tribal leaders, um, a lot of them get it immediately and they love the idea of having, um, particularly kind of the financial literacy piece built in and getting more people banked. But, uh, of some of them, we, we tend to always run into folks that have some sort of tribally owned bank, financial service, payday lending product. And so, um, for those, you know, for those folks, it's a little bit different conversation of figuring out like, okay, well, how can we partner? You know, if you have a a responsible, you know, financial product, is there a way that we can talk about getting it in front of people? Um, and, you know, figuring those things out, but, the reason why we're doing this is because there's a huge gap in terms of service for this market. There are 30 native owned banks in the entire country. So that's, you know, not a lot of banks and and the ones that are out there, um, they're typically smaller in terms of their geographic footprint. They've got like maybe one or two branches. 
Um, they may have a consumer app, but it's, you know, like Jack Henry version 2018. Um, or they, they technically have a bank, but it's really just kind of a mortgage operation, or it's really just kind of a CDFI mm. or, you know, whatever the case is. So in terms of having an actual national brand that is for FDIC insured chartered accounts, um, you know, there really is a, a big gap in Indian country for that. So you, it's kind of a natural progression in your career, right? At bank director, you really followed the, you know, the industry and, you know, frequently published on it. You come to Alloy Labs. Now you spend a lot more time working on bank and fintech partnerships, including a lot with the Baz Group. And now you leaped into, hey, I'm just going to actually go do this, <laughs> do this thing. Right. I'm, I'm curious, what's been the biggest challenge so far in standing up a fintech? Well, I think that my challenges have been so much different than uh, any other fintech founder because of that background that you mentioned. So, you know, when you look at um, like the middleware providers like the Singteras and Bonds and Units and all those guys, they are really interesting. They provide a really needed service for folks that don't have deep ties into the banking sector. Um, like if you don't have a bank partner and you don't know anything about compliance, that's that's perfect for you, right? Um, th- those were not my problems, right? I, I know a lot of banks. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know I know a lot about... 70 you know, plus of them, you know. Oh, yeah. at least. I mean, I interviewed hundreds of bankers at bank director for not just stories, but to build out the Finex tech. So like I had a lot of like the more rare, I think knowledge when it comes to like diving into something like this and building something like this. Um, for me, the biggest challenge, I mean, once I told you about what I was building, that took away a lot of challenges (laughs) (laughs) in terms of just like having the time to, and, and brain space to like, have permission to think about these things all the time. Um, so thank you, Jason, for being the world's best boss um, and, and incubating new companies under under your wing. Um, but, you know, I mean, fundraising clearly is a challenge and wrapping up the initial close for our pre-seed in a time when, you know, the market is going insane and tech stocks are falling like crazy um, certainly is a little bit scary and stressful. But you know, I even think that from that, we've been a little bit more insulated than others because of this very specific customer base that we're serving mm-hmm. and and the availability of, um, you know, there are so many more funds now that are dedicated to underrepresented founders, women founders, black and brown founders, impact investors. So those folks have the same mandate no matter what tech stocks are doing, right? And so even there, I think we've been lucky to be a little bit insulated. So what advice would you give if you were someone who doesn't come, you know, deeply ingrained in the industry to start a fintech when they see a problem, whether it's on the business model or breaking in, what advice would you give to someone who wanted to start a fintech? I would say, make sure that you are solving a unique problem that is truly not being addressed by anyone else. I mean, I think that this is where we got to the point of saturation that we did with neobanks is there are so many that are just kind of generic digital banking products that actually don't do a lot of other things. So I think starting with the problem is always the most important thing. Like don't go build something for the sake of building it because you think you can, Um, you know, wait until you find something that's actually needs a solution, but that is also worth fighting for 
what we're trying to address with Totem is something that I've felt personally that has impacted my life. Um, it's something that, you know, my heritage will always be a part of me. And so that's something that's not going to go away, whether the trend is, you know, towards NFTs or away from Web3 or like all of these different shiny things that we chase so often in fintech. Um, having it, having your business be something that you have personally experienced and felt and will always have a connection to, I think can go help, help take you really far in the times when it feels like everything is falling apart and all of the deals are falling through and people just aren't getting it. Um, you need something that you feel really passionate about to get you through those times. So if people want to partner with Totem, they feel they have something to provide the native people or they're interested in getting on your waiting list, where can they find out more? Yeah. So you can find us at mytotem.app. That's my T-O-T-E-M dot A-P-P. And um, we are hiring also. So I will say that there's at least one, hopefully by, by the time this episode airs, several job descriptions up. Um, so yeah, we're looking for tribal partners who want to you know, work with us to get your benefits paid out, add your benefits to our platform so that people can find them easier. Obviously, love a good account holder. So if you're a native and you want to get on our account waitlist, mytotem.app. Um, you want to, if you want to work for a very mission-driven company, you know, that's there for you too. And then we're, you know, we're on Twitter, um, at bank with totem and we are just getting started. So our kickoff is this week. And so, um, we'll be hopefully posting fast and furious. Um, we'll also hopefully just be a good account to follow if you want to, you know, find out more about native culture and be a supporter and an ally and an advocate for us. Fantastic. And in full disclosure, Alloy Labs is an investor through our fund in Totem. So not only did we spin Amber out, spin her up, but we are investors. So good luck, Amber, and excited to see this mission continue. Thank you so much, Jason. Appreciate you having me. It's fun to be on this side of the mic. (laughs) (laughs) That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Lisbeth Severance, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carla Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media. Or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast, and in return, That helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.